Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Most of my career has been general assignment reporting. So I've covered everything. And uh, I, I think that helps to, you know, one day I'm interviewing a gubernatorial candidate and one day I'm sleeping under the bridge with sex offenders. And it's like <laughs> the swath of my world is so wide that I try really, really hard to suspend judgment. Wait, did you? I, I see this was a story I did not see. Did you sleep under a bridge with sex offenders? Oh, yeah. A few years ago, they had this horrible thing in Miami where they were letting guys out after they'd served their time, but they didn't let them live anywhere because they made these ordinances that you couldn't live within, you know, a thousand feet of us. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. This week, we're sharing a podcast conversation that Lane had recently with Jeff Perlman, an author of seven books and former Sports Illustrated senior writer. Jeff has a podcast called Two Writers Sling and Yang, and he recently discovered Lane. It's a fun conversation. Today's topic, Podcast Pals. Okay, Lane, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate this very much. My pleasure. I actually have an idea. I wanted to run this by you. You want a Pulitzer. I don't have a Pulitzer. But I feel like if you gave me your Pulitzer, then I could say I have a Pulitzer. So would you be willing to give me a Pulitzer? <laughs> You're, you are welcome to the Pulitzer. I don't even know. What does a Pulitzer look like? What do you actually get? Well, on the website, it looks like you get a gold medal, like you're an Olympian of some kind. But actually, it's a little um, crystal tripod thing it's got and it's got joseph pulitzer's face engraved on it and where do you keep it i have it in my little office i had it in the window but my son saw some um mythbusters episode where the sun went through a crystal and burned the house down so i had to take it out of the window. <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> so um i want to start with a story that i freaking loved that you wrote earlier this year it was stormy at the strip club a porn star cashes in on presidential connection uh february 17th 2018, and basically Stormy Daniels, who everyone knows by now, was appearing at a strip club in, uh, in Tampa. And you went to cover Stormy Daniels at the strip club. And it's kind of funny. I could see people saying like, oh, why would you want to cover that? And I was thinking as soon as I saw the story, I would want to cover it. That's the exact kind of story I love writing about. How did this even come up? Was it your idea? Did someone assign it? How did this happen? <laughs> yeah, I was at a writer's conference with my editor. And it was the same week that the Parkland shooting happened. And so she said, basically, you have a choice. You have to leave this writer's conference. You can either go to Parkland and write about all these poor high school kids and their agony, or you can go to the strip club tomorrow night and write about Stormy. And I was like, really? That's my choice? That was no right. choice. So I, I took one for the team and went to the strip club. Besides a five ninety nine all-you-can-eat buffet, like what were you looking for? 
Well, this was her first stop on the um, Make America Horny Again tour. So, you know, I was going to break this national story. <laughs> no, she, we, we just were supposed to get an interview with her. The pitch of the story from the strip club owner who I spoke with said, oh, you can have this exclusive sit down with her while she's getting her makeup on and putting her pasties on and you can hang out in backstage while she's doing lap dances. And it was, you know, he pretty much promised me the whole buffet. But then we get there and the photographer and I are waiting and waiting and waiting and the show's supposed to start and we're like when can we talk to stormy and they said oh no she's not going to do any interviews and by the way she doesn't want any photos so you have to leave so there were tv stations there were other uh magazine, a crew from Norway, some magazine in Norway, and everybody left except for me and the photographer because we were like, dude, we paid our 20 buck cover charge. We're going to see the show, you know? <laughs> and um once all the other reporters left, she came out. She didn't give me an interview, but she did let the photographer take a picture, and then we got to see her do her show. So I kind of had to zig and say, what's the other way, I, what's another story I can tell here? Because it didn't pan out to be the story I wanted to write. I found it really interesting. So there's a, um, you wrote about this one guy, Mike Remmert, and he's a 74 year old. You wrote, Mike Remmert, 74, voted for Trump, quote, because he's not a politician. He didn't care if the president had sex with a porn star. More power to him if he did. And then you have this paragraph. Remmert has been a regular at the dollhouse for more than a decade. I love how it's the dollhouse, T-H-E-E. Dancers call him the candy man because he brings them bags of starlight mints. He lives alone, works at Walmart. Saves his paychecks for Crown Royal and Cokes and cover charges. He paid 20 bucks to get in Friday, $80 more for four red mesh ball caps. He pulled one over on his sparse white hair and gave the others to his favorite girls. And then he said, I knew Stormy before all this stuff broke, he said proudly. I met her here years ago. She signed a picture for me. He had brought a couple of her DVDs that night, but said he never watched them. He wanted to ask if she remembered him. He wanted to tell her a joke. Okay, I'm reading that and I'm thinking... God, this is so pathetic. Like, there's something really sad about that. He's a guy who works at Walmart. Not that anything's wrong with working at Walmart, but it kind of, it exudes, everything about that section exudes sort of sad old man in his 70s, hoping that the stripper remembers him. Is that what you were trying to show in a way? Well, you're right in that it kind of seems sad, I think, to, to people like you and I, um, who maybe that is in our world normally. But he was so happy. He was such, this, this moment was so big for him and he'd been waiting, you know, for a week for this. And so I, I kind of like that dichotomy. I didn't have another character, you know, and he was sitting there by himself. Uh, I talked to probably 30 or 40 men and women who were there. Nobody wanted to give me their name. <laughs> so, you know, it comes to that point, like, who's going to let us take a picture? Who's going to share their story? Who's going to give me their real name and not lie to me at a strip club? So a, a lot of me trying to find someone to tell the story was just like, who's a willing subject, you know? And um, I also liked that he was a regular. It wasn't like he just came to see her. I, I thought that was kind of cool. He had some history with the place. He had a nickname of the candy man, you know? So he was not at all sad with his life. He, this was what he lived for. And um, I kind of like that idea of finding somebody who's got something at stake, you know? It's really interesting. You ended it because you ended it with um, the last line of the story is, he went to the back of the line, waited for 20 people. You again, Stormy asked. She remembered with an exclamation mark. I have a joke, he said. Have you ever smelled mothballs? She looked confused. Was he referring to himself, to Trump? Slowly, the porn star said, yes. Remmert laughed. Well. How did you get them to spread their little legs? And that's how you end the story. And it's like, I think I probably read it away. Maybe you didn't even think of it. 
I kind of read it as this, again, this sad guy who just wanted five minutes of attention from Stormy Daniels. And I kind of left that story feeling bad for him. Like he wasn't in on the joke. I was trying to see it through his eyes. And he genuinely seemed happy that he got that small connection with her. You know, um, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time in strip clubs, but I spend a lot of time in bars and I, I do understand those relationships that people build. You know, he, he was happy just that the, the strippers knew his name, you know, happy enough to buy them a hat and bring them candy. And this, this was his connection. So it, it felt sad as a, observer but when i tried to get into his headspace i could tell he was really satisfied by this and enjoying this and he got what he wanted to out of it are you able to enter a story get an assignment begin it and not have sort of prejudgments of people i hope so i I try to i mean most of my career has been general assignment reporting so i've covered everything and uh, I, I think that helps to, you know, one day I'm interviewing a gubernatorial candidate and one day I'm sleeping under the bridge with sex offenders. And it's like <laughs> the swath of my world is so wide that I try really, really hard to suspend judgment. Wait, did you? I, I see this was a story I did not see. Did you sleep under a bridge with sex offenders? Oh, yeah. A few years ago, they had this horrible thing in Miami where they were letting guys out after they'd served their time, but they didn't let them live anywhere because they made these ordinances that you couldn't live within, you know, a thousand feet of a, a school, a playground, a library. A, a, and in Miami, there was no place for them. So there was a whole colony of like 40 guys living under the Julia Tuttle Causeway, uh, sleeping in tents and peeing in the water. Did you actually spend, like, what did you do? What was the assignment? Well, the photographer and I went down and, and we're going to just camp out with these guys for a couple of days and see what it was like to live when you had nowhere to live. I mean, they had legit been released from jail. They'd done their time and served their sentences. And they're living on this asphalt under a bridge. Their grandmoms were literally bringing them dinner at night and do- dropping it off. Their girlfriends were coming to have sex in the tents. And it was just the weirdest little colony. And it was horrible what they had done to these people. So we just kind of wanted to write about like, you know, what it was like when you'd done your time and you still had nowhere you could go. So I asked you to send me a couple of clips and uh, which you did. And I have one in front of me that you did not send me that I freaking was fascinated by. I actually read it three times. And uh, oh my gosh, it was from uh, January 26, 2018. Killer who said he'd been bullied, threatened by drug dealer, has his day in court. And it was a super short story. I mean, it's going to have been it's probably 600 words, 500 words. Your lead is Anthony James Roy was facing a first-degree murder charge looking at life in prison. But if he had the right jury, if he could tell people about the man he killed, this homeless guy who had hung out in his backyard for two years, smoking dope and selling drugs, how the guy had waved drugs in his face and threatened his wife, maybe he could convince them the shooting was in self-defense and he could get out of jail. For months, Roy, 51, thought about the gamble of taking his case to trial. He wanted people to know he had asked police for help, tried to get rid of this guy, hid in his own house. He wanted to explain why on that hot July night in 2016, he followed Bernard Anthony Richards across the street into the parking lot of the Stop and Shop Convenience Mart and shot him 17 times and kicked him in in the head. It is an amazing... I I thought this story was as good as anything I read of yours. And you probably wrote in 20 minutes for I know. You found empathy for and sympathy for a guy facing first-degree murder charge. I don't even know how you did it. So how'd you do it? I didn't write the story when it happened. Our police reporter wrote the story when it happened. And she basically wrote, like you said, in about 20 minutes, got the police report, you know, talked to the deputy. And the story came out in our paper as it was a a war between two drug dealers. And that was kind of how this guy was characterized. 
I waited a couple months and I talked to his lawyer once he got a lawyer and we got all of the depositions and all of the um, recorded conversations and I got to go interview him in jail and I interviewed his wife and his mother and I wrote a big, big piece that came out in, I think it was November. That it was actually, it was kind of weird. I wrote it like a play. So it's all dialogue. There's hardly any writing. It's, it's like a, a narrative told in dialogue. And the more we learned about the story and the more we talked to other people in the neighborhood and the family, we realized how much this guy had been baited. You know, this was like three years of leading up to this moment that ruined not only the dead guy's life, but his life as well. So, so yeah, I, I wrote the court story. You know, I went to court that day and I wrote that on my phone. I think I typed it on my phone after the hearing. But the the big the bigger story was all t- told in his words and his wife's words and the cops' words, and it's, it's all a. Um, it was called the house on the corner. I'm fascinated by your life at the Tampa Bay Times. Because you know what's funny? I actually found out about you. A friend of mine, a writer named Michael Lewis, but not Moneyball Michael Lewis, said to me. You need to have this woman on. She's so ridiculously good. And you're going to hate that. Oh, wow. I'm going to, I'm going to admit something I hate to say. I said, I don't know who that is. Oh, she writes for, she writes for the Tampa Bay Times and blah, blah. And I was like, the Tampa Bay Times? Because I feel like nowadays it's just increasingly rare that we talk about great writers and newspapers. I hate to say that, especially when they're not the New York Times and Washington Post because of decreasing in funding. And the decline in circulation and the folding of newspapers. And obviously you're well known. You wrote the, you won the Pulitzer, but you're this writer, the Tampa Bay Times and circulations are going down and newspapers are declining and print is dying. And what is your life? Like, why are you, why are you there? <laughs> no one has that's asked a big me question. that before, Jeff. That's a, that's a big question. Um, I've always wanted to do newspapers. I grew up in DC during Watergate. I was five, six years old during Watergate and I decided I want to be Woodward and Bernstein, you know, as this little girl. <laughs> and mm-hmm. So I set my sights on that from a very young age. I've worked in a bunch of bureaus at smaller papers. Um, I did not want to raise my kids in DC or New York. I had two little, little babies when I started doing, um, narrative writing. I, I when I switched from, you know, covering beats and news to doing narrative. And I knew that the, um, it was then called the St. Petersburg Times had big reputation for doing narrative. They'd won, um, a, a reporter named Tom French had won the Pulitzer Prize in 1998 for a big series called Angels and Demons. And I just fell in love with that style of writing. And I met him at a conference and I was like, that's the paper I want to be at, you know, so. I came here in 2000. Um, we had a staff of about 16 feature writers then, and we had a daily feature section and a magazine and everything else. And, you know, slowly that's been whittled down over the years. There's uh, two, three of us left. Actually, one of them is leaving today to go to the um, Philadelphia Inquirer. So there'll be two of our feature enterprise writers left out of about 16 we used to have. The other woman is my friend who won a Pulitzer too, Leonora LePeter. And so we, you know, we're both 50s and raised our kids here and know the communities and the paper's still letting us tell these, you know, five, 10,000 word stories. And even though we don't even have our own section anymore, they'll jump it off the front or they'll create their own section. And there, I think the Times, the Tampa Bay Times is proud of its narrative tradition. So I'm really, really lucky to still be at a place that values that. Like you said, a, a lot of papers don't even have one person doing those kind of stories anymore. And a lot of the younger people from our paper have gone to the Post or the New York Times or Politico or, you know, some of the online publications too. So we're definitely losing, uh, this used to be, our paper used to be a pipeline, I feel like, for young narrative writers. And um, 
it, they're going other places now, but I'm holding on. I'm still holding on. Right. It's very interesting because I started out at the Nashville Tennessean and the Tennessean, you know, a lot, you know, David Halberstam started the Tennessean. There used to be a New York Times pipeline. And I look at the Tennessean now and it kind of breaks my heart because it, you know, Gannett kind of ripped it apart and it's very thin. And, and I wonder like seeing the newspaper go from this to this to a little less to this to 16 writers to 14 to 12. Do you survive by not paying too much attention to sort of the declines? It, it's impossible not to be affected by, it, especially when colleagues keep getting laid off. You know, very, very talented writers and colleagues and copy editors and designers and people who've been there for decades are, are getting laid off and it's heartbreaking. And, you know, I've, I've talked to college, universities have been recruiting me to go and be a professor. I've talked to other papers. But I, I love my job. I love living in this area. I love having 18 years of knowledge about a state to cover. You know, I don't know that I could start over and do that again at a new city as well. And, and I think I'm hoping that they figure out like, like one good thing with the internet, you know, is we can write as many words as we want, whether it's costing money in newsprint, they can let us go much longer on, on the web and they're designing things much better so that like, I think the one story I sent you, the one about Phoebe John Chuck was the first time they'd done like interactive on the web, you know, where you can hear the 911 calls and you can watch the boat go under the bridge and while you're reading the story. So I feel like we're evolving in the way we're telling stories and sharing them, but there is no revenue to support the print product anymore. And with all the tariffs that are happening on newsprint, they are canceling sections. They're, they're printing fewer pages. Um, you know, it, it feels dire. It really does. Do you still get a print newspaper? Oh, I do. Yeah. I, we, <laughs> well, they take it out of our, uh, our salary. So it comes in my yard every day. <laughs> oh, funny. And do you pick it up and read the whole thing? I do. I do. I, I still read mostly in print. Your money story. I guess we all have a money story. I got to think your money story because it won you the Pulitzer in 2009 is the girl in the window, which, um, I've now been talking about to people for two days. Talk to my kids about it. Talk to my wife about it. Uh, oh, wow. Oh, my God. I mean, I know you've heard this from a million people. It's, it's one of the best stories I've ever read. And, and it's kind of funny when you hear someone want a Pulitzer. I think maybe as a writer, the first reaction is, you know, how, well, how good could it be? You know, blah, 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 I don't know, blah, blah, blah. And then you read it and you're like, oh, shit, this is really freaking good. <laughs> you know, like this, this is really <laughs> good. You. It's about a young girl, just to let listeners in, uh, who was born as Danielle. And for seven years, she was, she was raised and basically ignored and she never spoke. Uh, she was seven years old and she was 46 pounds when she was found by a police officer in her house. She never saw the sun. Uh, she never felt the wind as he wrote. She, um, she never tasted solid food. Yeah. You, uh, you quoted, uh, the officer who found her. He said, I've been in rooms with bodies rotting there for a week and it never uh, stunk that bad. There's zero way to describe it. Urine and feces, dog and cat and human excrement spread on the walls, mashed into the carpet, everything dank, cockroaches everywhere. And you basically wrote about this girl and the finding of this girl and then the adoption of this girl. I'm, I, I have a million questions about this story, but how did you even stumble across this? How did this come to be? Um, I, I have not had a beat since I moved to Florida. So I try to find stories that fall between the cracks of other reporters' beats. And, and nobody at that time was covering foster care or social uh, service as a beat. So I kind of befriended the PR lady from um, the Hillsborough Children's Board, which was the board that oversaw uh, adoptions and foster care. And 
every year she would call me and for probably three or four years and say, Oh, we're going to hang up, you know, 180 pictures of kids that are available for adoption at the mall this week. Or we're going to have a big service at the church and, and put up these pictures. And it was basically kids whose um, parental rights had been severed. And so they were available for adoption. So every year I would tell this woman like, okay, that's a brief. You know, that's a brief on the B section. They're putting up a display from the Hart Gallery. And yes, it's heartbreaking that 170 or 470, which the numbers vary, kids are, don't have homes. You know, that's really, really sad. But if you can give me one kid whose story I can tell or one family who wants to rescue one of these kids, I can zoom in on that and make a much bigger, more impactful, emotional story that will touch people in ways that just saying, you know, 170 pictures are going up at the mall. So this woman called me the first week of January and she said, oh, Lena, I've been doing the heart gallery for 20 something years. I've never had a kid like this. Um, we've got a little girl who's a feral child. And I was like, what? Like, I, I didn't even know what that was really other than watching the jungle book with my children. You know, um, I'd never done this in like 20 something years of reporting. She actually helped broker the story for me by having the little girls. It's always interesting, like the negotiation between writing a subject and writer and their initial sort of hesitancy and, and, and skepticism, perhaps. Do they have a point? Like, do you ever feel when you're sort of trying to get someone to tell you their story? Do you have to think to yourself, I get why they don't want to tell it? Do you ever have to walk away? Do you ever have to say, you know what? Maybe they're right. Maybe this actually, I'm not saying in this case, but maybe they're actually better off not telling their story. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's the hardest part of my job for me is making the pitch you know, trying to convince somebody that their story is, is worthy to share sometimes or that they should share it. And, and I'm with you. I'm, I'm half the time. I'm like, Oh, I wouldn't tell me this story. <laughs> you know, if it was my story, I wouldn't want to talk to me. I feel like that all the time. Um, but so I try to come up with a reason ahead of time. What, what's in it for them? You know, I know why I want to tell the story, but what's in it for them? And in this case, it was the social worker saying to them, if you guys take in a little girl this damaged and you can share that story with Florida, think how many other parents might think of adopting other children. Think how many other children you might help find families. And so it was a very um, altruistic pitch that this family was very Christian and felt like God, they wanted to pray about it and they felt that God told them they should do this. And there were, there were like three other little kids that got adopted after the story came because of the story. So that was the most reward, even better than the Pulitzer Prize. Your lead to the story was the family had lived in the rundown rental house for almost three years when someone first saw a child's face in the window. A little girl, pale with dark eyes, lifted a dirty blanket above the broken glass and peered out, one neighbor remembered. 
Everyone knew a woman lived in the house with her boyfriend and two adult sons, but they had never seen a child there, had never noticed anyone playing in the overgrown yard. The girl looked young, five or six, and thin, too thin. Her cheeks seemed sunken, her eyes were lost. The child stared into the square of sunlight, then slipped away. Months went by, the face never reappeared. And then you say, you know, just before noon, on July 13th, 2005, a Plant City police car pulled up outside the shattered window. Two officers went in the house, and one stumbled back out. When you were reporting a story like this, I guess specifically this story, this is real nitty-gritty, but just as an example, you're writing about the house and the nastiness of the house where, where this girl was being raised. How are you compiling the information? Like, are you literally interviewing the police officer and saying, tell me everything you saw? Are you asking for pictures? Are you asking a million different people what they saw? Like, how are you compiling the little details to get the little Yes, details? all of the above. <laughs> we, we started out with the police officer who was amazing. I mean, he was like your quintessential cop and he was perfect. And he had remembered this case that had haunted him. And he had a little boy who was about the same age. And so as a dad, as well as a detective, he was completely devastated by this. And we sat down in his office and he had 87 crime scene photos. So he basically just clicked through them on his computer and narrated for us what he remembered by that scene. What he was great with the smell and the feel of the cockroaches under his boots. And I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better interview than him. And I pulled some of the follow-up details from him, but a lot of them he was triggered when he saw the evidence photos. Um, he could walk us through that. And we interviewed the neighbor across the street, you know, and, and got all her details. But then one of those aha bonus moments, uh, we went to the house, you know, we had the address of the house, but they hadn't lived there in a couple years or maybe a year or so. Um, and the little, bo this little boy who lived next door came out and, and saw us, you know, snooping around and peeking in the windows. And he's like, do you want to go in that house? And I said, what? Did you know the little girl who lived next door? And he was like, I never knew there was a little girl next door. He was about eight or nine. He goes, but if you want to see the house, my grandma bought it. No one's been in there. It's kind of gross. So we went and got his grandma, and she let us in the house, which hadn't been touched since they took her, Danielle out of that room. And we got to go sit in that horrible, disgusting room. The mattress was still there. The the bare electricity was cords, you know, we're all out there, snakes and bugs and stuff. And we got to sit in that room for maybe 20 minutes and, and experience what her world had been that whole time. So that was amazing opportunity to like immersion reporting, you know? Wow. How important was that for the story? That's very interesting. I think it was huge. I mean, for me to feel that we could see it and hear it from the cop, but to actually be in that space and, and imagine what it would be like to do that little girl. You know, that was one of the stories, like my son at the time was about the same age and he's super loquacious. And I thought, oh, I'll go interview this little girl. I had no idea. Not only could she not talk, but she couldn't even look you in the eye. So my main subject was not interviewable, you know, so being, being able to, uh, to experience where she was and what she was seeing um, was very helpful. I actually thought when you said, uh, you know, you had this golden opportunity. I thought what made this story, what took this story from being great to absolutely exceptional, like the, the moment where it just went, boom, was part three, which is where you interviewed the mother, the mother of, of this girl, Danielle, because there was some, you know, like it would have been very easy to dismiss this mother and been like, oh, who leaves her son, her daughter in a closet with, a, with shit, you know, and, and never gives her. And it would have been super easy. Super easy to dismiss her as that, leave it at that, and focus. But you knock on the mom's door, and she lets you in. And, you, I mean, you were, you know, the inside of the trailer is modest but clean. 
Dishes drying on the counter, silk flowers on the table, sitting in her kitchen, chain smoking 305s. And I just want to say, and I always say this to my students, chain smoking 305s, it's super important. It's so much more than just saying chain smoking or chain smoking cigarettes, like the specific chain smoking 305s. She starts at the end, the day the detective took Danielle. Part of me died that day, she said. And all of a sudden, you're telling me about this woman who I hated, and I can't believe it, but I'm reading your story kind of sympathetic toward her. I, I wish I could tell you that was my brilliant idea. <laughs> I, I thought I was going to take... <laughs> you could tell me. It wasn't, you though. could tell me that if you want. It, it was your it brilliant idea. At all. Yeah. I, I wanted to tell the story of her rescue and her new life. And my editor, Mike Wilson, who's the editor of the Dallas Morning News now, he kept coming up to my desk and saying, you have to go find Boo Radley. He called this birth mother Boo Radley, like from To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, like this horrible character that everybody wanted to paint everything bad about, but nobody really knew her deal. So he was relentless in that I had to go find this woman. And she was really hard to find because she'd like busted probation and she didn't have an address and didn't have any friends who knew where she was. So that was him. That was him saying, no, you got to go find this woman's story. Wait, how'd Um, you find her? (laughs) We went to the original house and talked to all the neighbors and found out she was friends with a woman who lived down the road who she'd stayed in this trailer. And we went to the trailer and the woman said, no, she's not here anymore. She lives in this place where there's all these pit bulls in the yard. So we went to the pit bull. (laughs) It it took like three days. And then finally someone said, oh, I think she rents a trailer from a woman named Peggy. And so we have a news researcher still at the Times, which is also kind of amazing. We still have a full-time news researcher. And she scanned the property ownership within a three-mile radius of the house where Danielle had been taken and found one woman named Margaret who owned about three different trailers. And she's like, is Peggy a nickname for Margaret? And I said, I think so. I don't know. But that was it. We went knocking on doors after that. And um, we were, me and the photographer were both a little bit nervous to go meet this woman because we thought, God, she did this to her daughter. What's she going to do to two reporters showing up at her doorstep? You know, so it was a huge surprise that she even wanted to talk to us. And I think another, a good lesson for me that of like, you know, talk to everybody, try, try, try to talk to everybody because she had an important part of that story to tell. I'm a big door knocker. Like I'm a huge door knocker. It's one of my, it's one of my go-to things. I would rather knock on your door and give you a call. Like I would rather surprise you and knock on your door, but it is nerve wracking as hell. You never know what's on the other end. Um, how are you with door knocking? How are you walking up to her, to Michelle's door and knocking on it? Yeah. We, we, okay. Don't laugh at me, but well, you can laugh, but we've had to get ourselves pumped up for this really bad. Like I didn't really want to talk to her. I knew I had to, but I didn't really want to. Um, and I also, I agree with you. It's a lot easier for someone to tell you no on the phone or to not take your phone call than it is to shoo you away once you're in their doorway, you know? So I'd prefer to go there, but it's totally scary. And even after 30 years, it, it, it freaks me out. So we had to drive around the block about three times. We were blasting guns and roses, trying to get our courage up. And then we like backed in the driveway in case we had to make a quick getaway. And we texted our editor, our like GPS location in case something happened. You know, we were like really trying to cover our bases there. I, I don't think I would have done that by myself. Um, my door knocking is usually with the photographer. I, I want another person there with me. So that helps a lot. I'd say a decade ago, I had to do a story about a, uh, a guy who murdered a major league baseball player and he got out on a technicality and he lived in Gary, Indiana. And I flew out to Gary, Indiana and I researched his story and I found an address. I didn't have a phone number, but I had an address for the guy. And I decided I was going to knock on his door. And my daughter was probably two years old at the time. And I pull up to his apartment and there's like, long overgrown grass everywhere and there's some boards in the in the windows 
and I'm sitting there, sitting there, sitting there. And it's the only time I ever drove away and didn't knock on a door because I just thought, this guy killed someone. I'm a new dad. It just doesn't seem like the best idea. And I've kind of regretted that ever since. I've actually, that kind of has haunted me. I feel like I wimped out. Really? Yeah. But at that <laughs> moment, you're thinking more of your daughter than your story. I, I mean, I, I, I think that's huge. I remember having that conundrum when all of a sudden things I would never have thought of twice about doing before seemed like I can't do that because of the kids, you know? You end up writing the story. And then last year, you do a follow-up and uh, you sent me the link. You said, you know, yeah, and I wrote this. I also wrote a follow-up of what, of what happened to the girl. And I remember being very excited to read it and also thinking, oh, this is, this, I, I really hope this worked out. Like, I hope this worked out. And that wasn't really the case. It was actually, I, I, I was kind of heartbroken reading that, that piece. But I wonder where you, like, did you have different expectations for what she would, Danny would end up being? Did you kind of have an inkling that, that it would not end that beautifully for her in her life? Yeah, I think I didn't send you the middle story. We did a story three years afterwards where we went and visited her in Tennessee in her new home. And I, th I think that story was the first inkling I had that maybe this fairy tale ending isn't going to happen, you know, because I think one of the reasons the story, the first story worked so well was because there was all this horror, but then there was all this hope. You know, and, and, and nobody knew what her possibilities were and everybody wanted to project these wonderful things that they could do with the right therapy, with the right love, with the right family. Um, so that first story had, had so much hope and I felt actually, I felt guilty for the readers when I went back to do the follow up story because I felt like, oh, I'm going to just snatch all that hope from everybody because it's not, yeah. you know, it's, it's not a fairy tale ending. I mean, I think three years after we went there, we realized also that her adopted mom was just not all in and it was all the dad that was taking care of her and she was still required, you know, 24 seven, uh, she wasn't able to take care of herself at all. So when he called me and told me that he was putting her in a, a group home, it was just heartbreaking. I felt like, okay, that's the end. You know, she, she turned 18 and went to a group home and my son turned 18 and went off to college and just... That was maybe the most heartbreaking part of all, like right when my kids are launching into this world on their own and I'm so excited for them and, and they're so ready for this new adventure. She basically gets dumped in this home with, you know, a, a TV and a hot meal. And the only thing that, that, that made it a little bit easier was that she seemed happy, you know, and almost like back to the Walmart guy, right? Like her, her dad, Bernie kept saying to me like, but look at her. She's so happy here. She's got friends and peers for the first time. She's, you know, got other people to play with her helicopter with her. And so he was, I, I know he was trying to convince himself it was okay, but also just being in her presence for two days, she did seem happy. She seemed content and she hadn't seen that before. You know, she's, She's not going to be able to take a shower by herself. She's not going to be able to drive a car or have a job or whatever. But she wasn't tortured anymore. You know, she wasn't having these meltdowns or breakdowns and she could communicate and she could stand there and not run away. And, and so there, there were little incremental things that you could tell got better, but it certainly wasn't the happy ending we were all hoping for. I read a story about a guy who died on 9-11 and um, I've stayed in close contact with his family. I've watched his brother, his younger brother have have kids and his family kind of have to move on with life. And I feel like it's a story that really sort of haunts me. Um, I think about it all the time. Every 9-11, I can't get it out of my head and sort of around that time. And I'm not looking for pity. I don't deserve any pity for that. But I'm saying like, there are certain stories. It's almost like you, th you think that could have been me or that could have been my brother or that could have been my best friend. And you just mentioned having, having kids. And here's this girl 
Danny, who could be in college right now. You know, she could be, if she were raised by in a normal circumstance, there's no reason to think she wouldn't be in college or having a job, certainly fully functioning. Do these stories haunt you at all? Yeah, no, I, there's certain ones definitely that stick with me. And, and a lot of them is when I relate them to my kids, just like you're saying, you know, like I, I did a 9-11 story too. And I wrote it about this uh, little girl whose dad was a firefighter who'd been killed. And she was the same age as my son. And I, I think about that so much, like all the guilt I have about not being the world's greatest mother, at, at least I have my, and my kids have me and I have them. And that, and that's not the same for so many people. And, you know, if, if someone had scooped in and gotten Danny when she was two or three, the whole thing might've been different. And I think about that so much, all the missed opportunities. And it, it makes me so uh, in awe of Bernie that he would take in a little girl like that and commit himself to her for all those years. But it also makes me just so angry that a, the birth mother was so neglectful, but B, the, the social services people had seen Danny twice before she was six and they didn't do anything and they didn't follow up on anything. And, and that anger overwhelms the anguish even sometimes because I felt like there was a, an opportunity that was so missed to save her. It's one of the best stories. It's one of the best features I've ever read. Oh, thank you. I know you. you've heard that from a million people. Let me ask you a final thing. Do you, um, I guess this is of a lot of writers sort of of our generation. You're talking to a 20-year-old kid who really wants to be a writer, a journalist, and you see it firsthand. I mean, you see newspapers falling apart, print kind of dying, um, outlets lowballing people, paying them whatever, five cents a word. Do you still go into this? Do you still suggest, do you still recommend young writers become writers? Wow. That's a sad question. I, I feel like if someone really, really wants to do this, <laughs> there's, there's no stopping them, you know, but I, I taught journalism for a couple semesters at the uh, University of South Florida here. And of my 20 kids in each class, there were maybe two that really wanted to do it. You know what I mean? That, that really, really felt that hunger in their belly and that curiosity that couldn't be satisfied. And I totally encouraged them. But the other ones who were sort of half-assed about it, I was like, you don't want to do this enough to make it worth your while. You know, um, a lot of them went on and did marketing. Um, a lot of them became social media people for different corporations and law firms. So they, they're, they're keeping, a, I guess, a piece of, of it, but to be a, a reporter anymore, I mean, freelancing, I'm sure, you know, it's, it's really a hard life to live as a freelancer. And I don't know that you can do that right off the bat. You know, a lot of these people think, oh, I'm going to freelance for all these magazines. And I'm like, no, you're not. You need a job that's going to pay off your student loan and give you some health right. insurance. You know, um, we're still hiring, you know, at the times, even though we're like laying off older, more salaried people, we're hiring a ton of interns. And I tell them that, you know, go try it for a year or two. See if it's what you think it is, if it's what you want. See if you can live on that salary, you know. Um, but there, I think there's also you know, two different paths that people take. There's, there's people who really want to be writers that can find something else with their writing, but there's also people that just really want to be reporters, you know, that need that kind of adventure and, and finger on the pulse of what's happening or an excuse to talk to how many strangers you can encounter, you know? And, and if I see both of those pieces in one person, then I, I say, yeah, give it a shot. You, you need, you owe it to yourself to try it. I'm going to throw a weird one out. Your final one. I, I get the feeling you're probably the same way. Like I would always rather hear someone talk than tell my own story. I am fascinated. I feel like you and I, um, I don't know, I read your stuff and I kind of feel the sensibility that I want to sit down at the bar and I want to hear the guy's story and I don't really need to tell my story. I'm happy to hear your story. Do you think you could be a good journalist and also be a talker? 
I know that sounds weird. Can you be a good journalist and be a talker? A guy who talks a lot, the guy, the guy who just won't shut up. I think as long as you can force yourself to be a good listener too. I, I mean, I told my students that all the time, you have to be able to be a good listener. And I used to work next to a guy who <laughs> the photographers would always complain because we do video, you know, with most of our stories now. And they'd be like, Oh, I cannot go out and do a story with him because he never stops talking on the video, you know? <laughs> and, and I think having someone shoot video with me in interviews has forced me to shut up a lot more because I, I am kind of a talker. I like to share my story, but it, it forces me to step back and be a better listener listener when I know their video recording. So the people who are talkers who aren't aware <laughs> that it's not about them and their stories, no, that doesn't usually work. But I think there's a lot of journalists who can share and have a conversation um, as long as they remember who needs to have the reins to tell the story. You know, it, I think it's not a weird dance for you. Like it is for me. It's, it's their story, but then you get to tell it. And, and that's a strange balance. I think, you know, it's, it's like, you have to draw out their story, but then you kind of make it your own story. And uh, that's the part I always start to feel uncomfortable about. Like, am I getting this right? You know, and, and are they going to read it and see that it's authentic? They don't have to like it, but are they going to think that it's, you know, I got it right? Well, listen, Lane, seriously, it is um, one of my joys of this podcast is getting to dig deep into different stories. And, and I would say so far, you're the 53rd episode. I, I, I would say this is um, the, the, you know, the girl in the window is my favorite. My favorite story I've read this oh. year. So I, uh, it's really an honor for me to, Thank to have you. you. I just love it. I just love it. And I really appreciate it. Oh, that made my it. day. Thank you very much. Okay. If you have a question for Lane about any of her stories or would like to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. And join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.